the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And this week, after greeting our friends in Scandinavia, I want to bring up one of the most brazen examples of blame anything bad on climate change and to heck with the facts that I've ever seen, which is saying a lot. Specifically, while Western nations were still scrambling to evacuate their citizens and local friends from Afghanistan's Kabul airport and making a horrible mess of it, CBS blamed the Taliban victory on, yep, climate change. See, quote, rural Afghanistan has been rocked by climate change. The past three decades have brought floods and drought that have destroyed crops and left people hungry. And the Taliban, likely without knowing climate change was the cause, has taken advantage of that pain, end quote. Have you no decency? Or facts? As James Taylor over at Climate Realism promptly replied, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that in Afghanistan, yield per acre of cereal crops, corn, wheat, and rice, doubled from 2001 through 2018. If that's being rocked by climate change, more poor nations need it. CBS said that the Taliban pay people more to fight for them than they can make farming. And that's hardly surprising, since Afghanistan is still desperately poor, and the Taliban is very rich, not least because of their stranglehold on the Afghan opium trade, since the poppies apparently weren't rocked by climate change the way the pomegranates allegedly were. At this point, it would be fatuous to note that the Taliban first came to power in 1996 and ask whether CBS thinks climate change did at that time as well, because the point here isn't to marshal facts logically. It's to find something bad blame it on climate change, and insult critics. As former Canadian Environment Minister Catherine McKenna recently did, tweeting, quote, climate deniers, anti-vaxxers, and misogynists all hang out together. Quite the club, end quote. And speaking of lack of logic on climate, a lot of people seem to struggle with the concept of trends when this is the subject. Let one city or region have an unusually hot summer or get more wildfires than usual, and then they pounce and call it proof of global heating, no matter what it was. For instance, a wet July in London, England, with a hot spell in the middle. But as Paul Homewood immediately noted, it was very much like July of 1941, and other Julys in distant years. Or take forest fires, you know, one year it's Alberta, then it's the Amazon, then Australia, then California, or BC, and warming always gets the blame. Whereas when the same place has a normal or quiet season next year, the circus moves on, never explaining why a global trend toward more fires doesn't mean more fires globally but fewer, despite local outbreaks, and why a place that's rocked by climate change one year isn't the next. Including this year, Greece had bad wildfires, but Greece was famous for its wildfires back in Homer's day, and it had bad years in 2007 and 1985. Here's how a trend works. It keeps getting hotter year after year, and there are more fires just about everywhere, just about every year. But here's how climate alarmism works. You blame climate change for summer droughts in Germany, and then you blame it for summer floods in Germany. Even though there's been no trend in July precipitation in Germany since 1950 either way, and not much in July temperature either. Of course, they might salvage the whole warming causes bad weather thing by admitting that the weather isn't getting worse, but that it's also not warming as the 2016 and 2020 El Nino temperature spikes fade, the Earth is actually no warmer today than it was in 2000. But then there wouldn't be much left of global warming, would there? So instead, journalists rush to tout the imminent demise of the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation current system, caused, of course, by warming. Apparently, as the oceans warm, the current slows down to the point where, quote, it would increase cooling of the Northern Hemisphere, end quote. Got that? 
Irreversible warming causes irreversible cooling. Even if the story immediately adds, quote, other climate models have said the AMOC will weaken over the coming century, but that a collapse before 2100 is unlikely, end quote. Still, time to panic, right? As it always is on climate. Even if some simpleton comes along and says, hey, if warming causes cooling, wouldn't cooling then cause warming? Should crank the AMOC back up again in a self-balancing mechanism of the sort that alarmists insist climate mustn't have? Oh, and if the AMOC really has been weakening for over a century, isn't it dirty pool to blame recent warming? And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money, though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. Nevertheless, the alarmist conviction that climate is hopelessly fragile is underlined by another story, quote, marijuana has never been more popular in the U.S. and its carbon emissions have never posed a bigger threat to the climate, end quote. Not because the haze from millions of burning joints is trapping heat or greenhouses full of it across America are sucking up too much energy. No, according to this story, the problem is that federal laws against driving the stuff across state lines are forcing people to grow it in slightly energy inefficient ways. Look, if the tiny increase in emissions from growing marijuana in Connecticut for people to smoke in Connecticut instead of on vast Montana ranches or something is going to tip over and smash the climate bong, there was no keeping it upright anyway. In this week's newsletter, we also note that like Jean d'Arc, Greta Thunberg is finding it difficult to return to normal life after leading a children's crusade. She's meant to be cramming herself into a grade 11 desk at age 18, but instead she's still writing essays denouncing adults, including a hysterical foreword to a hysterical UNICEF report claiming that a billion children, nearly half of all the youth on Earth, are at, quote, extremely high risk, end quote, from climate change. Bosh. The number of people living in extreme poverty has dropped sharply in recent decades, and the number killed by natural disasters has dropped sharply in the last century, despite there being a lot more people. In fact, as Michael Schellenberg of Puckishly observed, fatalities from flooding in Europe have fallen enormously since 1870. Despite that, Thunberg et al. whined that, quote, virtually every child on the planet is exposed to at least one climate or environmental hazard right now, end quote. Well, sure, if you define them broadly enough, who isn't? But who wasn't a century ago? So the critical point is this. Unless the proportion of children worldwide who are at some sort of risk from heat, storms, flooding, air pollution, or vector-borne diseases was smaller 50 or 100 years ago, the whole concept that climate change is putting them in danger is insolent nonsense. Like 18-year-olds posing as children and then threatening us. Mind you, who needs children when the once reputable Economist magazine can run an image of two penguins in a floating armchair watching a fire on a floating television set? This is comic book stuff. In the newsletter, we also note a piece in the Hill Times headlined, quote, Time for talk is over, it's time to fight climate change, end quote. To which our response is, okay, could you stop talking then? But unfortunately, no. Because we're dealing here with a mentality that thinks that words are deeds and that wishes are methods. So if policies aren't working the way they hoped, they assume there are no policies, and when they have nothing helpful to suggest, they suggest it anyway. 
For some relief from that kind of nonsense, we continue University of Guelph professor Ross McKittrick's look at Stephen Coonan's landmark book, Unsettled, this time focusing on chapters 8 and 9, which deal with four topics where the dominant narrative says catastrophes upon us, but the data say otherwise. Any alarmist troll can tell you the seas are rising relentlessly and faster than ever. But after reviewing longer-term trends, Coonan then zooms in and says, over the past 120 years, the rise has been about 2 millimeters per year on average. And yes, over the past 20, it's been about 3. But there were also 20-year periods before 1950 where it was 3, and then it slowed down. So you can't compare one 20-year period to a 120-year period instead of to other 20-year periods if you understand statistics and want to be honest. Coonan also looks at three other issues, heat-related mortality, crop yields, and the effect of warming on economic growth, and shows that every time, lurid media accounts of worst-case scenarios contradict the historical trends. And he adds a telling anecdote. Once, when he pointed out that economic forecasts of the impact of warming were actually very small, a prominent environmental policymaker actually responded, quote, yes, it's unfortunate that the impact numbers are so small, end quote. It's unfortunate that doom doesn't loom? Only if you want to spread panic and facts be hanged. Inspired by Kunin, we also continue our own project of tuning out media coverage of the new IPCC report and instead quoting some of its actual text, this week on flooding. Now, the background is that the new AR6WG1 starts by noting that their last assessment report in 2014, that's AR5 to insiders, said that the data did not show a global trend. But with lots of new evidence, they now confidently say the same thing. It's not that warming isn't necessarily causing the increase in flooding, it's that there is no increase in flooding. And finally, for those who think that math is hard, well, sometimes it is. So, the same Ross McKittrick did a somewhat less technical summary for Judith Curry's blog of his new paper exploding the IPCC's method for looking for the fingerprints of greenhouse gases in climate data. And people may say, well, he's not a climate scientist. True, but he is an econometrician, and the issue here is the statistical tests that are used to separate signal from noise, which work the same way regardless of what the numbers stand for, including greenhouse gases. Also, he published his paper in the same journal that published the original statement of the method he's critiquing, so the editors saw the relevance. What's more, McCurtick says he's been sending his criticisms to the original authors for years and inviting them to respond, and finally one of them did, basically saying go ahead and publish your critique. And that's how science really works. And the alarmists may engage in their usual name-calling, but it's more than a little inconsistent to dismiss a paper on statistical theory by a trained statistician who's not a climatologist, while endorsing papers on statistical theory by climatologists who aren't statisticians. So we'll keep you posted on how that ruckus goes. Meanwhile, as always, subscribe, share, and support our work because the big oil company checks still haven't arrived. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson.